We're starting a series on the Ten Commandments, and today is an introduction. You always have to start with an introduction. But what will be happening is that uh, Bill Rabideau and I will be uh, team teaching this series, and uh, Bill will handle the odd-numbered commandments, and I will handle the even-numbered commandments, and we'll, we'll see how that works. But that, that could change midstream, but that's how we're going to start off anyway. So he's got one, three, five, seven, and nine, and I've got two, four, six, eight, and ten. So it's uh, we're going to we're going to go back and forth that way. I'm looking forward to working together on this. Psalm 119, verse 97. The psalmist says, "Oh, how I love thy law! It is my meditation all the day." That's really what we want to do: is we want to love God's law because God's law comes from our heavenly Father. And we, we want to honor him. Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We need direction. We need clarity on how we're going to conduct our lives in a way that brings pleasure to God. Psalm 1, one of my favorite psalms. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel. I'm going to re- do it from memory out of the New American Standard. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he'll be like a tree firmly planted by rivers of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. It goes on. But, uh, but Psalm 1, the, the, the blessed man is one who loves God's law. He delights in God's law, and he meditates upon that law day and night. And in that vein, when when the psalmist says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. Matthew Henry said this, when the law of God is written in our hearts, our duty will be our delight. That's really what this is all about, is to look at delighting in the law of God. Rick Phillips um, had an interesting article I came across, and he's touching on some of the, uh, he's a a good Presbyterian pastor. Um, I've known him for a number of years, but uh, he he was touching on some of the concerns that he sees in um, modern evangelicalism in general, but even in, in reform circles. And he goes on to say in this article, many Christian commentators today are expressing concern about antinomian tendencies in the church. We'll we'll define that, but antinomian means opposed to the law. And you should be thinking of Romans 6, 1. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace might increase? And the answer is, if you're reading the King James, God forbid. If you're reading the New American Standard, no way. That's a different translation, but may it never be. But the, the key is that, that we, the, the law is, is there for us to obey. But the commentators are expressing concern about antinomian tendencies in the church. We're especially seeing attempts to downplay the role of God's law as a guide to Christian living, the so-called third use of the law. Let me back up a second. So historically, God's law has been viewed in three different categories, the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law had to do with the offerings, what the priests would do, and that, that is viewed as fulfilled in Christ. There's a historic understanding of the three parts of the law, the moral, civil, and ceremonial. The civil had to do with Israel as a theocracy, and that has expired. But the moral law is embedded in, in the Ten Commandments, is viewed as enduring. And when we look at the uses of the law, Calvin articulated 
that there were three uses of the law. One had to do with a, a condemning role, uh, that it shows us our sin, and it, and it renders us guilty before a holy God, because sin is a transgression of the law. And then there is the uh, restraining use, which is a, it has the impact of curtailing lawlessness and uh, bringing about order in society, bringing about order in life. And then the third use is a teaching role, uh, to teach us how we should conduct ourselves in our day-to-day lives. It's, it's a rule for faith and practice, as sometimes it, it's said. But the third use of the law is to guide us in how we, we conduct our lives. But the question that he asks is, should we view the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments as uniquely appropriate only for Israel as a, as a theocracy, or are the Ten Commandments applicable to life today for believers? And I'll, I'll give you the answer. It's applicable to us today. That's, that's, that's how we're, we're going to approach this. Um, but he said, I confess that the dismissing of the Ten Commandments as a guide to Christian living alarms me greatly. And he goes on to say that it would be hard to find a shift with more profound implications, not only for Christian doctrine, but for our approach to daily living as followers of Christ. Now, what's he, what's he referring to in terms of some of these, these uh, trends that he sees going on? Top of page two, I hate to pick on somebody by name, but I will. Uh, if you know the name Andy Stanley, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and refer to him. But uh, he's, a, he's a son of um, Southern Baptist pastor Charles Stanley. And Andy uh, wrote a book, and he's, he's on, in print and, and recorded as saying that the following, The Ten Commandments have no authority over you. No authority. None. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. Participants in the New Covenant are expected to obey the single command Jesus issued as a part of his New Covenant. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So basically, love is the only commandment that applies. That's a very appealing proposition in today's world. Uh, but but the, the question is, is that a biblical assessment? And you can write no right next to that um, if, if you'd like an answer to that question. That is not a biblical answer. The uh, Jerry Bridges says, Love provides a motive for obeying the commandments of the law, but the law provides specific direction for exercising love. And when we look at the, 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 when Jesus was asked, and we'll touch on this in more detail, but what are we to do? We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So yes, love. And and what's the the second commandment? To love our neighbors ourselves, right? So love is clearly a, a guiding ethos or principle in the way we conduct ourselves. But what does that mean? How, how do we articulate what does love mean? Is it some sort of an amorphous feeling that, that we just have, that we love one another? I grew up in the 60s, and that, that was kind of the, the way people processed things back then, just love one another. But it, it was not a biblical form or fashion of, of what love meant. Um, but the, the Jerry Bridges, love provides the motive, and it does, love for God. Love for God and love for who he is and what he's done for us provides the motive for obeying the commands of the law, but the law provides specific direction in how do we exercise love. What, what does it actually look like? And J.I. Packer says, We are to order our lives by the light of his law, not guesses about his plan. So how do we know what pleases God? He's revealed it to us. It, he's, he's, he's articulated in his word in enduring truth what we are to do. 
Jerry Bridges goes on to say, God's law as a rule of life is not opposed to grace. Let me, de- let me define briefly, when he uses the term rule of life, what he is not saying, just so there's no concern about this, because we're going to talk about what is legalism. It, when we talk about the Ten Commandments and obeying the, the Ten Commandments, it is common that you will hear the term legalist or legal or legalism. And legalism is a, a, a good word. The, the key is, what does it mean? What, what, how do we define legalism? And to obey God's law is not legalism. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk about what that means. But typically the pushback in these conversations will be, whether well, you're, you're binding my conscience or this is legalism or something legalistic. And that's a very sad thing because that's, there is a, 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 a truth of legalism, but it's not following God's directives. But God's law is a rule of life, and that's, that's what Jerry Bridges is talking about, is not opposed to grace. Rather, used in the right sense, it's the handmaid of grace, or to use an analogy, it's like a sheepdog that keeps driving back into the fold of grace when we stray out of it into the wilderness of works. So what, what, what does it mean when we use the term legalism? Because I, when, when we use the term legalism, you need to be thinking about the book of Galatians. You need to be thinking about Paul's letter to Galatians when, when Paul was addressing those who the, were trying to put uh, the believers back under the law as a means of achieving a right status before God, as a means of justification. And that's really what legalism it was. It, it, Paul said, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I I, I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? They did not receive the Spirit by the works of the law. They received the Spirit by faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's what legalism is, is trying to be perfected by the flesh. C.J. Mahaney, legalism, and this is a very important definition, is substituting, in essence, my works for Jesus' finished work. Legalism is self-atonement, and it's the height of arrogance. It's living as if the cross of Christ was unnecessary or insufficient. Legalism is is a dangerous false doctrine, as long as you properly understand what that means. Legalism is attempting, and and I use the word attempting because it it will always fail to achieve a saving status with God by keeping God's law. We cannot achieve that. It's, in, it's impossible. The, the law was given to reveal our sin and to draw us to Christ, to drive us to the only one who ever kept the law, which is Jesus Christ. So we've got this, but then we deal with the motivation. Flip over to page three. So what should be the heart attitude, the disposition when it comes to the law? Back to Jerry Bridges, it, this, this deals with the, the, our motivation, our disposition, our, our heart orientation toward the law. Legalism does not consist in, in yielding obedience to the law. That you'll, you'll hear that, that if you're just trying to be a legalist. Rather, it is, legalism is to seek justification and good standing with God through the merit of works done in obedience to the law instead of faith in Christ. That's the proper definition of what legalism is. Legalism is not the same thing as a, a zeal for the commandments of Christ. It's not the same thing as obedience. 
when we're encouraging each other to grow in, in holiness and obedience, we're not being legalists. You, you will hear that word. I, I can almost promise you that you will hear the word legalist when you start talking about the law. And that's a very sad thing. That's a very sad thing because the law of God was given to us to, to give us God's loving direction on how to walk in obedience to him and, and to have a, a life that pleases him. So we're not legalists when we keep the law because we don't look to the, the law for life. The law shows us that we have true life in our hearts. We keep the law to be obedient to Christ and to show him how much we love him for rescuing us from the damning influence of trying to keep the law to gain eternal life. Obedience is a very far cry from legalism. Tony Rinke goes on, he's got an article on this subject as well. When he uses the term that legalism is a soteriological problem, soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. And when we properly understand legalism, we're into the realm of how does a person become a saved person? How, does, how is a person justified before God? By the works of the law shall no man be justified. The scripture says that very clearly. We will never be justified by keeping the law. What the law Paul said that, that the law is holy and righteous and good, and that the law showed him his sin. The law is a schoolmaster, the scripture says, to lead us to Christ. It's a, a pedagogue. It, it, that's the, the term that's used. The, the law is designed to show us our hearts. It's designed to, to show us the need for Christ, to, to, to draw us to the only one who can save us. And so legalism is, in fact, a, a false gospel. But he goes on to say that believers bring pleasure to God because the pleasure he receives is in the, the obedience of Christ. It, when, when, we, when we talk about the obedience of Christ, what does justification mean? Justification is two aspects. One is that our sins have been paid for. The guilt of our sin has been completely satisfied. The wrath of God has been fully paid for by Jesus Christ. When we use the term propitiation, we, we mean that the wrath of God has been poured out upon our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes, and we, we've said this before, and those who are in, in my care group have heard this more than, than once, but justification is not simply just as if you'd never sinned. It's, it's much more than that. The, the cross work of Christ and paying for our sins, when he said to Telestai, paid in full, he was claiming and, and expressing the absolute truth that the wrath of God, the Father, had been fully paid for all those for whom Christ came to, 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 to usher into heaven, all those whom he came to save. What Jesus did in his earthly life was he's the only one who ever fully kept the law, only person on, on the planet who has ever kept the law. His righteousness is imputed to the believer. The scripture teaches a dual imputation. It, it teaches our imputation, of, our imputation of our sins to our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's called the, the passive obedience of Christ and, and, and the imputation of his perfect obedience to us. We call that the active obedience of Christ. Both of those are indispensable to a right standing before God. The fact that our sins are forgiven is a glorious truth. But that will not earn us a place in heaven. What earns us a place in heaven is the perfect obedience of Christ to forgiven sinners. And both of those are indispensable. And, and so when he's talking about the fact that what pleases God is the obedience of Christ, that's, that's really the statement that he's making is that's how we're justified. Brian Chappell on page four 
uh, excuse me, I, I transitioned a little too quickly. We talked about uh, legalism. Let, let me talk about the, the flip side of legalism. The flip side of legalism is antinomianism. That's a long word. Antinomian, it, it's a, a compound word. Nomos means law. Anti is, is basically a word of negation or opposition. Uh, I'm at the top of page four. Antinomianism is the same thing as licentiousness. It's the same thing as lawlessness. It's the same thing as living in callous disregard for the law of God. And Paul in Romans 6, after he's addressed the condemnation that everyone is under in, in the first three chapters of Romans, and then explains how it is that we're justified by the, by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, at the end of chapter 5, in verses 20 and 21, Paul makes the statement that where sin abounded, grace increases all the more, or abounds all the more. And so there's this person who's asking the question at the beginning of chapter 6, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace might increase? That's the heartthrob of an unsaved person, that I want to continue in my sin. I, I want to continue in lawlessness and rebellion against a holy God. But the answer Paul gives to that question, should we continue in sin that grace might increase, is may it never be. How should we who died to sin still continue to live therein? Or do you not know that we've been baptized into the death of Christ and raised with him? And we're not the same. And, and so antinomianism is just as evil and just as wrong as, as legalism. And, and so at the end of the, the notes, there's an article uh, by Sinclair Ferguson that, that I won't go into today. It's there for extra reading on how antinomianism and legalism are basically stepchildren of each other. They're, they're tied into to each other. But um, antinomianism is lawlessness. It's opposition to the law. And Sam Storms, the Christian is not free to do what the Bible forbids. That's what Romans 6 says. Should we continue in sin that grace might increase? And the answer is no. Brian Chappell makes this very helpful thing. Legalism makes believers think that God accepts them on the basis of what they do. Licentiousness makes, which is the same thing as antinomianism, makes believers think that God does not care what they do. Both errors have terrible spiritual consequences. I think that's a very succinct way of describing the difference between those two, but both of them will lead you down a path that is, is completely wrong. Well, let's talk about the Ten Commandments. It, it's, it's critical when we look at, at the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, that we look at the preamble to the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 1, Then God spoke all these words, saying, and there's a number of points that he makes in our, in our scriptures in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Three things I, I would point out. First of all, he says, I am the Lord your God. That gives God the prerogative to, 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 to determine what law is. The, the Puritan um, Perkins, William Perkins, said this, law is not law unless God is God. And so when, because God is God and we are not, we are his subjects because he's created us, then first of all, he says, I am the Lord, but not just any Lord, I am the Lord, what? You are God. He's looking at the covenant relationship that he has with his people. So first of all, it begins in a covenant relationship. Secondly, what has he done? He brought you out of the land of, of Egypt. So he's delivered them from bondage. And then he gives them the law, and he, and he gives them a path to follow. He gives them directives on how they're to conduct their lives. But he, the preamble to all of this is, I am God. I am not only God, I am your God. I have a covenant relationship with you. I've set my love upon you. I've redeemed you out of, out of slavery. 
I've delivered you out of bondage. And so that sets the context for the Ten Commandments. All of that is, is just so important. Well, are the Ten Commandments repeated in the New Testament? Sometimes people will struggle over this. Well, the Old Testament is where the Ten Commandments are. That's true, at Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. But Christ actually repeated the Ten Commandments in, in the New Testament. With, there's only one exception, and we'll talk about that. But in Matthew 22, um, the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, so there was this little battle between these two different camps, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They gathered themselves, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first table of the law. There's two tables of the law. The first four commandments essentially are what what Jesus just said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, that's the the great and foremost commandment. The second is is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. That's essentially commandments 5 through 10. The first table of the law, commandments 1 through 4, deal with our relationship with God, and and the commandments 5 through 10 deal with our relationships with our neighbor. So Jesus, the scripture says, did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. That's that's what he says in Matthew 5. And in Matthew 5, verse 19, whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same should be called, top of page 5, least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. When you look at the New Testament, nine of the Ten Commandments are specifically repeated in, in, the, uh, in, in the New Testament scriptures. And in this passage in Mark 10, uh, the notes say that, that Jesus repeats four of the ten. Actually, as I look at it, he repeats at least five of them in Mark 10. He was setting out on a journey, and a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Okay, now, here's Jesus, and he's explicating the commandments. Do not murder. That's the sixth commandment. Do not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. Do not steal. That's the eighth commandment. Do not bear false witness. That's the ninth commandment. Do not defraud. I'm not sure if that would fit into the 10th commandment or the 8th commandment, whether it's coveting or or stealing. But then in in honor your father and mother, that's the 5th commandment. So Jesus has specifically stated the 5th commandment, the 6th commandment, the 7th commandment, the 8th commandment, and the 9th commandment. And he says, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. He thought he had. That was his, his, his sentiment. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Isn't that important? What motivated Jesus to bring the law into this man's life? Love. Love. He he wanted to show him the law. Why? So that the law would reveal his heart. So that the law would reveal his sin. So that the law would reveal his need for a Savior. And, And so, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. That was the Tenth Commandment, coveting. That's, that's the commandment that really nailed him. By the way, that's the same commandment, if you read Paul in Romans 7. That was, that was the commandment that, that, that really touched Paul's heart and, and drove him to a knowledge that he was, he was lost. Did, did you know that, that 
of the Ten Commandments that nine of them are specifically repeated in the New Testament. This comes from Third Millennium Ministries. The only one that is not specifically repeated is the Fourth Commandment, which is the, the Sabbath Commandment. And we'll talk about that. That's going to be one of the, 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 the Ten Commandments that we address when we get to that point. And then I've given you the biography of the, the person who put this together. Normally I wouldn't repeat all of this, but for the benefit of at least one person in the audience, the, the person who wrote this was formerly a police detective, during which time he came to Christ. So I thought at least one person in the audience would appreciate knowing that, sitting up in the balcony. But, uh, but I, I wanted to at least point out the, the background of the, of the man who wrote this. But, so we've got nine out of the Ten Commandments repeated. And again, Brian Chappell, what, what's the motivation? Why are we having a teaching on, on the commandments of God? It, it, it's so important that we understand that it's about our hearts. It's about our motivation. We are not legalists. We are not into self-justification. We're not in self-atonement. And, and so we, we should delight in God's delight. God has always hated the taking of innocent life. God has always hated things that destroy covenant marriages. God has always hated taking someone else's property in an illicit fashion. God has always hated defaming another person and tearing down their character. God has always said that he's entitled to our undivided love. God has always said that he is to be worshiped as he would ordain. It's the character of God. This, the, the, the Ten Commandments show us the moral character of God, which never changes. And never will change because the character of God is immutable, eternal, and infinite. And so when we look at the commandments, you're seeing the heart of God. And the heart of God has never changed. It will never change. It will never increase or decrease. It's infinitely committed to the fact that marriage is a sacred covenant between a man and a woman and is never to be defiled. That we are not to defame each other, that we are not to take each other's property or, or to do anything that would undermine someone else's reputation. And we should always be content with what God has given us and never covet what belongs to someone else. That's, that's the heart of God. Why does he do that? Because he loves us. And when we walk in a way that's contrary to that, we're really walking in a self-destructive path and we're alienating ourselves from the God who loves us. And so when we look at this, we, as, as Brian Chappell says, we should delight in God's delight. That's what the law is. It's, it's God's delight. Mere outward conformity to the law is not what God requires. Matthew 5, over and over, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, and then he would cite a commandment. And, and, and he was speaking to people who thought that some outward mechanical observance of the law would put them in a right standing with God. But what did he do in every instance when he said, You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, he wasn't changing the law. He wasn't adding to the law. He was saying that what it means to keep the law is that your heart has to be right. And, and even the scripture says that to obey is better than sacrifice. To hearken is, is more important than the fat of rams. So it's not just a mechanical outward keeping of the law that pleases God and, and, and helps us to walk in a way that honors him. Our hearts have to be right. And so the motivation is, is, is absolutely important. He goes on to say the heart renewed by the Spirit desires to please God. So how do you know whether someone is truly converted? If they say, well, 
all I need to do, I, I realize I'm going to go out and then commit whatever sin that they want to commit. And I know it's wrong, but you know what? I'll just ask for God for forgiveness and, and everything will be all good. That, that shows a complete disregard for the character of God's law. It shows a complete disregard for the holiness of God. It shows a complete disregard for the gravity of sin. That, that's what an unsaved person would say. An unsaved person would not hold God's law in a serious fashion. An unsaved person would say, well, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace might increase? And the answer they would be saying by their life is, Sure, I think that's how I'm going to live my life. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, No, God forbid, or may it never be. How should we who died to sin still live therein? And what is sin? Sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And so the law of God is given to us to, to show us our sin, to restrain sin, and to teach us how we can walk in, in, in our daily faith and practice. So the heart renewed by the Spirit desires to please God, and it's anxious to find out what He desires, and it's motivated by a sense of bringing God pleasure. God's law is an expression of His grace. Why? Because it's an expression of His character. God has revealed His heart to us in the law. Commands show us what God is like, what He prizes, what He detests, what it means to be holy as He is holy. The law is God's plan for sanctified people to enjoy communion with Him. Well, what we, sometimes we use the term the moral law, and I, I'm just going to hit some high points here, but I've got uh, a discussion about the, the, the law of God, and, and that God has revealed his moral law in three different ways. One of them, top of page 7, is God revealed his moral law to Adam in, in, the, in the garden before the fall, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, Adding, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. God revealed to Adam before the fall what would be required of him in order to live a blessed life and to enjoy fellowship with God for all eternity. And what did Adam do? He broke that. And then Romans 5 says that as one man sinned, so we all sinned in him, and so death spreads because we've all died in, in, in Adam. But then God gives us the, Moses the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And, and it, but then we've got this mosaic body of law, and it, it consists of three parts. I mentioned this earlier, the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law, the, the sacrifices, obviously have been fulfilled in Christ. The civil law had to do with the conduct of Israel as a theocracy, and that's expired. The moral law, because it, it, it's the embedment of, of God's heart, his very character, never, never expires. It never changes. It's always the same. And, and so, as he says, the moral law written on the, the human heart at creation continues to bind all human beings to obey it. Before the fall, the law directed Adam to a blessed way of life. Since the fall, it can only serve to restrain sin expose human sinfulness, condemn sinners, and show how much we need Christ as our only Savior. And so it shows us the, the gravity of sin, and it shows us the reality of sin. Galatians, I mentioned earlier, that the law is given as a pedagogue, as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Sometimes people will say, they'll, they'll turn to this passage in Colossians 2, where Paul writes that the handwriting of ordinances that was against us was taken out of the way and nailed to the cross. 
That does not mean that God's moral law has been rendered inoperative. What that means is that the condemnation that was ours, because we're all lawbreakers, was dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of those accusations against us, which are true, where do they go? On Christ as our substitute. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's exactly what Colossians 2, 14 is saying. When it's saying that the handwriting of ordinances that was against us was taken out of the way and nailed to the cross, that's saying that Jesus bore the, the guilt and the wrath that goes with that guilt of guilty sinners in his work of atonement for us when he, when, he, when he died on the cross and he said to tell us to die. That's exactly what that means. That does not mean that God's law has become in, in, inoperative. That's not at all what Paul is saying there. So, top of page eight. Um, yeah, let, let me just, uh, Kevin DeYoung, uh, kind of the middle of page eight, I'm just going to hit some of these points here. But why should we obey the Ten Commandments? Earlier, we had one person that said, you shall not obey the Ten Commandments. They have no jurisdiction over you. And we, we said, is that biblical? That's not biblical. And it's really sad. It's, it's probably a reaction to a misguided understanding of what, law, of what legalism is. I, that, that, I'm guessing that's what was going on in his heart when he made those statements. And that's really sad. That's why we made the distinction between what legalism is and what it isn't. Obedience is not legalism. Obedience is a way of self-justification or lording it over someone else or, or trying to esteem ourselves in a superior condition over someone else. That's legalism. But obedience is a way of living before God in a way that pleases Him is, is what we're, we're designed to do. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. How do we know what glorifies God? He's revealed it to us in His Word. And His Word embodies the moral law of God. Well, Kevin DeYoung makes this, this point that the Ten Commandments are, are not to be ignored. It, it's important that we study them, that we understand them, that we grasp what they're all about. Um, but then he goes on in the second paragraph, and, and I keep going back to the motivation issue because that's so fundamentally important because unless we grasp why it is that we obey the Ten Commandments, and, and I use the word obey because sometimes if I use the word keep the Ten Commandments, that, that evokes in people's minds that we're obeying them as a way of somehow trying to justify ourselves. So I'm not going to say keep the Ten Commandments because that probably means to someone sitting here that we're obeying them as a way of, of trying to, to, to satisfy God's righteousness and earn a condition before him. That's a fruitless effort, always has been. So how, why do we obey the Ten Commandments? And, and it, it has entirely to do with motivation, working hard to obey the Ten Commandments from the wrong motivation, second paragraph in this, and for the wrong end is a surefire way to live out a relationship with God in the wrong way. God gave the commandments that they might be obeyed, not to earn salvation, but because he's going to give five reasons. Who we are, who God is in himself, who he is to us, where we are, and what he's done. Five reasons. One, who we are. This is an interesting point. He makes the point that Exodus 19 comes before Exodus 20. You knew that, right? 19 comes before 20. But in Exodus 19, 
God says to, to Israel that they are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, that they are his, that he set his love upon them. And he identifies them as a kingdom of priests and, and, and a, a royal um, priesthood. Well, we'll go over to page 9, and I've reproduced this passage for you uh, in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Um, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You're God's own possession. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So people are, are set apart for God, right? He says, you're my own possession. First Peter 2.9, you've got exactly the same language in the New Testament. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's almost identical language to Exodus 19, which was the preamble to Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. Why? So that... Anytime you see so that, you should circle that, underline that, say, I'm about to read the purpose for this. So that, what's the purpose? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why do we obey the the Ten Commandments? Because we're God's possession. He set his love upon us. And we're to be a different people. Uh, he goes on to say, Kevin DeYoung, that, that we, we're, we need to be prepared to be different because we are different. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old things have passed away, new things have come. We, we're to look different, talk different, have, and have rules that the world doesn't understand. Peter, Jesus said in John 15, if they hate you, know that they've already hated me first. I mean, we're, we're a different people. We're pilgrims in, in an alien land. And, but, but we are God's people. And God is different than the world. And, and God's people should be different than the world. And we are his people. And so we, we're to be distinctly different in the way that we conduct ourselves. And, and so we live according to God's ways. Number two, who God is. This goes back to the preamble of the, of the Ten Commandments. The opening verse in Exodus 20 establishes who God is and why we should obey him. You, you remember we, we talked about this just a moment ago. What, what did it, I am the Lord, number one, I'm God. Your God, I have a covenant relationship with you. I am your God who's delivered you out of bondage, out of Egypt. I've done saving work in your life. I've delivered you from, from captivity. And it gives us a reason about why we would obey. Down at the bottom of page 9, the law is an expression of the lawgiver's heart and character. And they, they show us what he wants. They show us what God is like. They, they say something about his honor, his worth, his majesty. They, they tell us what matters to God. We can't disdain the law without disrespecting the lawgiver. So first of all, we, we, we obey because of who we are, and then we, we obey because of who God is. And then top of page 10, we obey because of who God is to us. And we, this goes back to the passage in Exodus 19 and, and 1 Peter 2. The God of the Ten Commandments is revealed to us not simply as Lord, but, but the Lord, your God, and we are his treasured possession. You've got the same language in Exodus 19 and 1 Peter 2, almost identical language. The common theme in both is that God is our God. He is our pe- we are his people, and he treasures us. And so we live in a way that, that pleases him because of all the many miraculous things that he's done in our lives, his saving work in us, his redemptive work in our lives, his grace that is shown toward us. And he gives us the commands for our good and for his glory. Reason four, where we are. 
And this has to do with why are, are these laws given? And, and we, we live in a, a world of anarchy. Uh, we live in a, a world, uh, I'm not going to politicize this, but you've heard the expression defund the police. I can't think of anything more nonsensical, more anarchic than, than that, to defund the police. The police are, get, are ordained by God to enforce justice. It, 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 Romans 13 talks specifically about that. The authorities are given. So when we talk about undermining the very authorities that God has given to us to enforce law and order, we're going directly contrary to God's created order. That, that is rebellion. That is anarchy. That's the, the essence of what the devil is. He, he's a destroyer and a murderer from the beginning. So it's satanic. It literally is satanic when we start going down a path of anarchy and Antifa and, and all of these other things. That, that is not representative of a moral God. That is representative of Satan himself. And so the, these rules are given to us. First John 5 said the, the commandments of God are not burdensome. A believer will, will not groan under the commandments of God. A believer will say, thank you, God, that you're showing me the path that I should walk on. This goes back to Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk, walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. If you think about that, walk, sit, you know, stand, sit, really get at home with the lawlessness and godless people. That's not our place, but his delight is what? In the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. God's law is given to us for our good and for his glory. And in 1 John 5, 3, his, his laws are not given to us in a way that is burdensome to us. Top of page 11. The fifth reason of, of what he has done, and we mentioned this earlier, it's, it, the, the preamble to the Ten Commandments uh, goes into the fact that, that, that we have been saved, that, 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 or they have been delivered. They've been brought out of bondage. Believer, have you been brought out of bondage? You have. You have. If you're in Christ, Colossians tells us that you've been transferred from the, uh, the, the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You know what the domain of darkness is? Under Satan's tyranny, the one who hates your soul and would love to take you right into hell with him forever. That's his only goal is to take you right along with him into eternal perdition. You were delivered from that. You've been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. So, out, so the motivation for obedience is gratitude. It's, it's, not, it's not trying to earn our status with God. Jesus has already earned our status with God. We, there's nothing that we can do to earn a status with God other than to acknowledge that we're sinners. But what Jesus has done for us is he's, he's delivered us from darkness and, and he's purchased us a place in heaven. So the motivation for obedience is gratitude. Can we ever really be grateful enough for what God has done for us? No, we can't. Can we ever exhaust the, the, enough thank yous to God for what he has done for us and his beloved son and, and setting his love upon us in all eternity and delivering us from judgment, bringing us into a place of redemption, calling us his own? He's not ashamed to call us a brother. He died for us. He's, he died a death that we deserve. He lived a life that we could never live. Can we ever say thank you enough for that? The answer is no. That's why heaven is eternal, and that's why hell is eternal, because those who reject it will never, ever be able to outlive the rebellion against God and the justice that God is exacting upon their, their guilt. And heaven is eternal because we'll always be, be, be th saying thank you to God. 
So the law of God was given to us to be obeyed, not out of a, just a sure sense of mechanical obedience and, and ticking off the boxes, but a way of saying, thank you, God, for all of the good things that you've done in our lives. What I'm going to do is I'm just, in the time that remains, I'm just going to point out what you've got in the notes. And uh, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, has a wonderful book on the Ten Commandments, and, and I, I will be using that with some degree of regularity. He, he literally, you, you know how the Puritans are. They take a, a passage and then they unpack it, and then they've got all sorts of applications. That's the nature of his book on the Ten Commandments. It's, it's, um, it's, it's wonderful. But he gives us a, a number of reasons to obey uh, the law of God. Number one, do you want blessing in your souls? Then obey God. Number two, disobedience is utterly irrational. Top of page 12, disobedience is destructive. So then what do we do? We consider, number four, that God's commandments are not grievous. And he commands nothing unreasonable. And then finally, number five, God commands nothing except what is beneficial. Down at the bottom of page 12, this is from Thomas Watson. There is love in every command. It is as if a king would command one of his subjects to dig in a gold mine and let him keep all the gold for himself. That's what God wants for us. Can you imagine? He's saying, here, go dig in this gold mine. And guess what? Everything you dig, you get to keep. And the God is, he's given us his word, he's given us his law as a way of of guarding our souls, protecting us, directing our paths. And um, so then, top of page 13, the the earnest supplication, good Puritan language from Thomas Watson, implore the help of the Spirit to, to carry you on in obedience. God's Spirit makes obedience easy and delightful. And that's, that's the heart of a believer is God's spirit makes keeping his law obedient or obeying his law uh, a cheerful thing, a way of saying thank you, a way of being grateful. And you've got this article you can, you can read at your convenience. But I, I wanted to give you an introduction to the, the Ten Commandments and the law and how we should view the law, why we should view it as a gift and not a burden, and, and, and how we are, our hearts are to be motivated to, to please our holy God.